This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Electric vehicles appear to be the future, with GM and Ford laying out plans for the eventual demise of the gas-powered car. But right now, potential buyers still have range anxiety. That's the fear an electric car's battery may run out of charge far from a recharging station. But a solution could be on the horizon, at least in the West. Joining me is Will Tour. He directs the transportation program for the nonprofit Southwest Energy Efficiency Project, an advocacy group based in Boulder. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nathan. Colorado and six other Western states have just joined forces to create this regional electric vehicle plan for the West. Uh, In essence, electric vehicle interstate corridors. What does that mean exactly? Are we going to see electric charging stations become as ubiquitous as uh, the gas station? Well, I think that what we're going to see out of this agreement is that all of the Western states are going to work together to get electric vehicle fast charging along all of the interstate highway corridors. So for Colorado, the agreement calls out interstates 25, 70, and 76. And I think that what we'll likely see is that every 50 miles or so, there will be a fast charging station that would allow somebody to recharge their vehicle in about 20 minutes. And in addition to the interstate corridors, I think we will also likely see some deployment of fast charging along some of the other corridors, you know, like Highway 50. I mean, does that mean that there are current chargers that just take longer or or is it that there aren't electric chargers at all? So in many of these places, there is not charging available Or, you know, there may be some slow charging available where it would take you several hours. So that's charging that works fine for people who live in the area and, you know, maybe just charging while they're at work or charging while they're parked for a number of hours. But in order to facilitate long-distance travel so that you can use an electric vehicle the same way that you would use any other vehicle, you really do need to get the fast charging out there. On average, how far can an electric vehicle go in a single charge? Well, that's changing rapidly. If you went back a, a couple of years ago, you know, other than a very expensive Tesla, you'd be looking at you know 80 or 100 mile range. But really this year, affordable longer range EVs have hit the road. The Chevrolet Bolt was the first of them. It's got about a 240, 250 mile range. And a The Tesla Model 3 is also going to be the first somewhat affordable Tesla that will also have a range in that 250-mile arena. Uh, So we're really starting to see battery prices coming down, and that's making it possible to do these longer-range vehicles. So only 250-mile charge range. I mean, even with that fast charge, a 20-minute charge, it's going to lengthen your trip just a little bit there. Um, So that is certainly the case. You know, what we're, but it's also the case that the vast majority of trips that people take are shorter trips. You know, when you look at typical drivers, you know, most days they're driving well, actually under the range of even a shorter range electric vehicles. Very few people on a daily basis are driving more than 50 or 60 miles. And so this is really about how do we make EVs work for those occasional longer trips that people take. So how big is this is this plan? Uh, 5,000 miles of highways covering 11 states. Uh, seven governors, including Governor John Hickenlooper, have signed on to this. Is this a big deal, or has this been happening for, for quite a while? 
I think this is a pretty big deal. Now, what we have seen is some movement towards this. So last year, three of the states, Colorado and Utah and Nevada, actually signed an agreement to start working together on this. But this year, you know, we're really seeing so much momentum in the electric vehicle industry with, you know, major automakers announcing that they're going to be adding many more uh, EVs over the next few years. You know, GM has said they're going to add 20 different electric vehicles by 2023. Hmm. We've got, you know, countries like China and now the state of California talking about actually banning internal combustion engines by 2030 or 2040. And so all of the automakers are, are seeing their future now as being electric in a way they didn't a couple of years ago. And I think that we are now seeing our state governments realizing just how important it is to get out ahead of that. In addition, they've got a ready source of money to help with that investment. Because of the Volkswagen emissions cheating scandal, Volkswagen, as part of that, had to pay close to $3 billion in fines that yeah. go to individual states. Like Colorado. And, uh, it, uh, Colorado expects to see around $68 million from this settlement. Is, is that going to help fund the, these, these interstate corridors? Uh, almost certainly. So Colorado has released a draft plan for how they would in, intend to allocate those funds. And the plan includes $10 million that would go into electric vehicle charging and specifically calls out fast charging along highway corridors. So I think we will see significant investment starting in 2018 that should make it possible within a couple of years for Coloradans to be able to get really anywhere they would want to go in Colorado comfortably with an electric vehicle. This month, like you said, both General Motors and Ford announced their plans for a zero emission future. Here's GM CEO Mary Barra talking about that vision. We're very committed that electrification is going to be a huge part of the solution from a climate change and, and having cars you know, really not have a negative impact on the environment. And a study from Bloomberg projects nearly half of all new cars by 2040 will be electric. However, there remain concerns that an influx of electric cars could strain the nation's aging electrical grid. And a report out of MIT says adding an electric car to the current grid is equivalent to adding three homes. Could adding more cars to this grid cripple the system and create more pollution as plants that supply that energy boost production? Uh, that's really not the case. Hmm. So if you look at the the Western states that are part of this agreement. The Union of Concerned Scientists recently did a, a report called State of Charge in which they looked at the emissions associated with operating an electric vehicle on the current electric grid. And in most of the Western states, they found that it was the equivalent of driving a gasoline car that got a little over 70 miles per gallon. Colorado is in a slightly different grid, and today it's not quite as good. It's closer to around 50 miles per gallon. But because the grid is cleaning up so rapidly with coal plants closing and more wind and solar coming on, by 2025 in Colorado, in the Excel grid, we would anticipate an electric vehicle being the equivalent of about a 75 mile per gallon gasoline car. And if the Public Utilities Commission approves Excel's plans to add, close two more coal plants and add about 1,700 more megawatts of solar and wind, 
would be the equivalent of a car getting close to 90 miles per gallon. So much cleaner than any gasoline vehicle that's out there. And just briefly, what do you base that anticipation on? So that's based upon the adopted, it's called the Integrated Resource Plan. It's the approved uh, plan by the Public Utilities Commission of what generation sources will be on the system by 2025. And that's still, of course, discussions uh, ready to come. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. Will Torres with SWEEP, the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project based in Denver. The nonprofit advocates for greater energy efficiency in the West. Still to come, how a 1960s Colorado court case involving an African-American pilot changed the commercial airline landscape forever. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The pilot who broke the color barrier at the airlines will be inducted into the Colorado Aviation Hall of Fame this weekend. Marlon DeWitt Green, who is African-American, had applied for a job with Continental, based in Denver at the time. Despite his sterling resume, they wouldn't offer him a job, so he sued. In 1963, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled unanimously in his favor. Historian Flint Whitlock wrote a biography of Green called Turbulence Before Takeoff. CPR's Ryan Warner asked him why the major airlines wouldn't hire Green. They were afraid their bigoted white passengers would refuse to fly with a black pilot. The other problem that they had, especially in the South, was that uh, when airline crews are off duty, they are put up in hotels and they have to go to restaurants. And at that time, restaurants and hotels, especially in the South, were segregated. And so they would have to make accommodations. They would have to take their white crew members to certain hotels and certain restaurants and their black crew members to different hotels and restaurants. And they felt that that logistical problem would be more than they wanted to deal with. What do you think it is about Marlon Green, about this man in particular, that allows him to break the color barrier? I mean, the Supreme Court decision came down in April of 1963. Yeah, it it uh, the story actually begins many years earlier when he decided that he wanted to become an airline pilot, actually a pilot, you know, of any sort, and went into the Air Force as an enlisted man. Even though he had no college education, he was a uh, you know, naturally gifted person and got into the flight training program, uh, graduated, got his uh, wings, flew for nine years, realized that uh, he could make a lot more money for his growing family. Uh, if he were a commercial airline pilot, and began sending in applications and and found the doors slammed in his face because of the fact that he was an African-American and no airlines at that time were hiring uh, minority pilots. And everything in his makeup was not giving up. After several years of flying for the military, uh, in June of 1957, Marlin tries to get a job at Continental, right. uh, the airline at the time based in Denver. He'd been living in Michigan, flying um, a state plane for the Department of Transportation there. Uh, He takes a flight test with Continental. And here's his sense of that test uh, from an interview that you recorded and and shared with us. I think I did well. Their response was uh, that everything was satisfactory. And at the end of the day, they said... uh, go on back to Michigan and we'll contact you in 10 days. I certainly was hopeful for 10 days. I think it was the 14th day when I picked up the phone and called Continental to ask them. What did they say? Well, that's when they said that he wasn't selected. He was 
passed over. They wouldn't admit that they had discriminated against him. And, and he had more flight hours. Yeah. He time had, in the cockpit than most, he, most he, everyone else He did. had something like 3,000 hours of, of flight time, most of it in multi-engine. And uh, when he looked at the qualifications of the other people who were hired, he had more than double what the next highest ranking uh, pilot below him had. And the reason was he was black, they were white. I want to get to the the, the long legal battle with Continental, mm-hmm. but he'd applied to many other airlines. Yes, every airline in the country and some out of the country. And uh, was rejected. And was rejected by all of them. Did he tell you about how frustrating that was? Oh, it was very frustrating, and, and he was very upfront about that. In fact, at, at one point, he had gone to one of the airlines and uh, they said, you know, even if your qualifications were perfect, we wouldn't hire you because you're black. So he heard he heard that directly from yes. some carriers. Right, right. And the only reason he got the the flight test with Continental was the fact that he didn't check the race box on the application form and he didn't enclose a picture, both of which were required at the time. And so Continental looked at his qualifications and said, oh, here's a guy who knows how to fly. Let's bring him into Denver and give him a flight test. And he gets here and he's... <gasps> He's the wrong color. <laughs> and the fact is that he brought him in, so they might as well give him the flight test, and, and they still rejected him. Well, his fight with Continental spans many, many years, many jurisdictions. Give us a, a brief take on the fight that eventually leads to the highest court in the land. Right. Well, in 57, when he found out that he had been rejected by Continental, he uh, made a complaint with the Anti-Discrimination Commission here in Colorado. They told Continental they had discriminated against him and they wanted him to be hired. And Continental's lawyer said, no, we're not going to do that. And so it went through a, a long series of legal battles. The Denver District Court turned down Marlin's claim. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled in favor of Continental. And so his lawyer, T. Raber Taylor, a Denver lawyer, took it to the Supreme Court. And in March of 1963, the Supreme Court, which was known as the Warren Court at that time as well. Earl Warren. Earl Warren was the chief justice. uh, They ruled unanimously in his favor and required Continental to hire Marlon Green. And so Marlon was brought into a training class, passed, got his certification, uh, became a, a uh, what they call a first officer co-pilot until he had enough hours uh, flying the Continental equipment that qualified him to become a full-time captain or or pilot on on their airliners. And he flew for Continental for 14 years before he finally retired. But it was a a long struggle. Uh, he lost some of his prime years. Oh yes, uh, you know. A, oh yes, he would. He could have been flying for much longer had the color barrier not existed. That's and, exactly right. Yeah. Did he tell you about that first flight? It's kind of funny because he didn't remember all the details. He, in fact, he didn't even remember where he went. <laughs> <laughs> it was either Kansas City or Colorado Springs. Out of Denver. Out of Denver. Stapleton uh, at the time. Out of, of Stapleton. That's correct. In a turboprop uh, aircraft. It's strange to me that you would you wind up joining an airline that you fought for so long in the courts. Did he tell you if that was a strange experience? Uh, he didn't specify the strangeness of it, but the fact is that you know when he ran into Robert Six, who was the president of the airline, one day, that Six didn't go you know and apologize or say you know 
gee, you know, I'm sorry for all the trouble we've caused you or anything like that. He was very nonchalant about the whole thing. So I guess it, it, it was kind of a surrealistic atmosphere that he, he encountered. Now, the subtitle of the book is The Life and Times of Aviation Pioneer, Marlon DeWitt Green. Is that how he sees himself? No, no, I don't think so at all. He, you know, somebody had to be the, the point man. Somebody had to be out ahead of everybody else. And he was the one who who broke the ice, you might say, uh, for other people. But I don't think he's ever regarded himself as anything special. He was just somebody who wanted to find a job and couldn't understand why he kept being rejected. Flint, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Brian. Denver author Flint Whitlock wrote a biography of Marlon DeWitt Green, the first black pilot for a major U.S. airline. Green died in 2009. He'll be inducted into the Colorado Aviation Hall of Fame this weekend. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. Rents are up in Denver, and so are eviction filings. Numbers for 2016 show the first increase since the recession. That jump has the attention of city officials. CPR's Sam Brash looks at their new response and why critics say it doesn't go far enough. Earlier this week, in the lobby of Denver's city and county building, Mayor Michael Hancock announced Denver's new approach to eviction. We want to ensure in this moment of progress and prosperity that we continue to work to bring everyone along and not push people out. There are three parts to the new plan. Denver released a new guide to tenant rights in English and Spanish. It also announced a plan for an emergency rent or utility assistance program. And finally, the city will employ mediators to help landlords and tenants strike agreements and avoid an eviction. Um, That one felt a little premature. That's at-large Denver Councilwoman Robin Kanish. She's part of a group looking into an idea that goes even further to support renters, hiring lawyers to defend them in eviction court. Any approach that involves this eviction process that doesn't have an advocate or some way to vet the balance of power between tenants and landlords is a concern. To meet someone who knows how a lawyer can affect an eviction proceeding, I went to a ground floor apartment in South Englewood to meet Jarvis Shedd. There's music on when I get there. I was listening to jazz to get in the, in the right mood to do this interview with you. Sorry about that. Shed suffers from cerebral palsy, which has him bound to a wheelchair. He says jazz helps him cope with the pain, as does medical marijuana. That caused some problems at his last apartment in Denver. He says his landlord started posting non-compliant notices in June, saying he couldn't smoke on the property. Then he learned an eviction had been filed. I had to be out right then. I didn't know whether I was going to go to a nursing home for 30 days while I found a place. That was an option. An option Shed saw as an affront to his independence. So he hired a lawyer. She struck a deal that bought him an extra month to look for a new apartment. If I didn't have a lawyer on my side, I think I would have gotten railroaded and not be in such a great place as I am now. 
Shed's the exception in Denver eviction cases, according to a study by the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless and the Colorado Center on Law and Policy, a liberal advocacy group. The analysis looked at a portion of recent eviction cases. It found only 2% of tenants had a lawyer, compared to 100% of landlords in the same cases. But those renters who had lawyers almost always managed to stay in their homes. Jack Regenbogen helped author the study. He wants Denver to pay for attorneys to represent renters. If the city were to get involved, it wouldn't be distorting the the fairness of the system, but rather rectifying a grave unfairness that limits the system from acting as it should. A number of East Coast cities and San Francisco already set aside resources for eviction defense. New York City has gone the furthest. As of this summer, it guarantees a lawyer for low-income renters facing eviction. Nancy Burke is with the Apartment Association of Metro Denver, which represents landlords. She says city-funded lawyers aren't the best use of taxpayer dollars. I think that they're addressing it at the the end. Rather than helping renters avoid an eviction filing. Giving them education at the front end so that would possibly eliminate them getting in this situation down the road. Burke helped craft the mayor's policy, including the new support for mediation services. She says landlords don't want to evict tenants, and mediation offers a way to keep renters in their homes. But Regenbogen, the study author, says there's a problem with mediation. It's voluntary. And so if one party to the case isn't interested in mediating, then they have every right to say, no thanks, and then mediation can't help. That's why he and others are still pushing Denver to support some level of eviction legal defense. As for Mayor Hancock, he's open to the idea, but wants more time to examine the consequences. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Coming up, we'll have some ghoulish tricks of the trade for your home Halloween decorations. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Well, Halloween is coming up, and that means time to figure out your home decorations or your costume. So let's revisit some ideas we heard a couple years ago. I talked to professional makeup artists and set designers Kevin Ward and Evan Hedges. They designed for the Denver Haunted House's 13th floor and asylum. And I first asked them, what scares them? The only thing that scares me is actually getting my finger caught in something. Really? I, I mean, seriously, like, as far as horror goes, I I haven't been scared by a movie in forever. I mean, if I was going to say a movie that scares me, I'd say The Exorcist still. It's still got that weird little vibe to it. Yeah. <laughs> I cast you out, unclean spirit, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is he who commands you. you Personally, what I think is scarier, and I have told actresses, is subtlety. Like, maybe you walk in... And you actually see the actor there. They're not hidden, but they're just already there. And they're just doing something that's kind of creepy. So then it puts you on kind of pins and needles because then you're like, I'm staring at this thing. What's it going to do? Yeah. There's, a, there's that like uncertainty. It's like, you know, it can strike at any minute. Being unpredictable is what's scary to me. And a lot of times it is, I think oftentimes it's the subtleties. What's a really easy costume or, or, or mask that anyone can design from stuff that you probably have around around the house? Any ideas there? One of the easiest things is kind of old school, just going to a spirit store and getting some, some latex and some cotton and kind of like 
you know, you'll be surprised what you can sculpt with that directly onto your face. Huh. I mean, in, in order to make a mask, I mean, the process is just grueling and, and very mm-hmm. hard to do. But I mean, for basic makeup at home, um, cotton and latex is always a good go-to. And there's so many tutorials on YouTube. I mean, there's thousands. You can find all the information you want online. But I would suggest that as long as you don't have a latex allergy. Yeah, well, that would be bad. Yeah, yeah. that would be. <laughs> and, and there's also pre-made prosthetics that they're starting to sell more and more that I'm noticing with shows like Face Off coming out. It's like a pre-made foam prosthetic that you could buy in your local makeup store. or Even Spirit sells them now. And, uh, you know, you can just glue those to your face and experiment. Well, I think what works well is to go to thrift stores. I mean, get inspiration online, figure out what kind of character you want to be, and then piece it together yourself. Go to places like Goodwill or go to the Ark or or somewhere where clothes aren't expensive and kind of of tailor your own outfits. And you can fabricate stuff with cheap materials also. You can get, um, like, foam tubing. You can wrap that in tape and latex. And if you give a good paint job, no one needs to know how cheap it actually was. I mean, exactly. I've, yeah. I've used like toilet paper rolls and cheesecloth and latex to like create some really cool props. What about decorating outside your home? I think one of the coolest things I've seen, well, I've, I've only seen a few times is silhouettes in your window doing something with, because a lot of people like to put lighting on the outside. I think lighting the windows from the inside and putting a silhouette of something, you know, you cut it out. It's a cardboard shape, but with a strobe behind it or something like that, it's, it's very simple. It's very effective. And I'm a huge fan of jack-o'-lanterns, lots of jack-o'-lanterns. And, uh, you know, nothing wrong with throwing some cheesy stuff in there, too. I mean, you get what you can. But I think the silhouettes and the lighting from the inside of the house is, is very effective. Yeah, and you can, I was going to say, you can always just buy stuff that you can repurpose as as a haunt decoration. I mean, buy, buy like, some baby dolls. That way you can have, like, little baby feet sticking up out of the out of the yard. I mean, that's, that's nice and creepy. <laughs> or you can... um. Go to Home Depot and buy some pink foam because it's cheap and you can make stuff out of it. You can make your own headstones. You can either just yeah. paint it or you can buy a bag of quickcrete wire there also and just coat it in that. And you can make it look very real because, you know, That's a lot of times it is. It's not about styrofoam. It's not about the materials because they can be very cheap. It's about the final layering. That makes you think that no longer is cheap, even though it really is. Well, truly, a smoke and mirrors. You all are about smoke and oh, mirrors, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and saving money. I mean, don't. I mean, just because the haunted house, you know, is a, kind of a bigger budget thing, but styrofoam and yeah. a bag of you know regular concrete you just mix with water to patch your driveway. You throw that on. You know, you carve some brick texture in there, throw it on, and paint it gray and put some black on it. It looks great. It'll look better than anything you can buy at a, at a Halloween yeah. store. Take a little extra time. YouTube. Find a tutorial on how to make a fake wall out of foam. You know, feeling like you achieve something is the best feeling, and that's really the reason I do this. It's like accomplishing something, like, that looks awesome, instead of, oh, I bought that and glued it to my wall. Take stuff and make it look like other stuff. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's, that's really that's our, our career. That's like the thesis of our whole career, really. And you can scare the heck out of people with it. Yeah, that. exactly, yeah. Well, thanks so much for being here, guys. Yeah, you're yeah, welcome. Thank you. It was awesome. Kevin Ward of Denver and Evan Hedges, who since moved to Chicago, are professional makeup artists and set designers. We spoke a couple of years ago when they were designing for the Denver Haunted House's 13th floor and asylum. For ideas of what scary things you can concoct with cotton and latex, head to CPRnews.org. And that's our show. Thanks for being here. Take a few minutes right now to support Colorado Public Radio. Call us, 1-800-496-1530, or go to CPR.org. 
and make a gift. This is listener-supported Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.